Chapter 16 of Sylvia's Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lauren McCullough. Sylvia's Lovers by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 16. As the day lengthens, so the cold strengthens. It was so that year. The hard frost which began on New Year's Eve lasted on and on until late February, black and bitter, but welcome enough to the farmers, as it kept back the too early growth of the autumn-sown wheat and gave them the opportunity of leading manure. But it did not suit the invalids as well, and Bell Robson, though not getting worse, did not make any progress towards amendment. Sylvia was kept busy notwithstanding that she had the assistance of a poor widow woman in the neighborhood on cleaning, or washing, or churning days. Her life was quiet and monotonous, although hard-working, and while her hands mechanically found and did their accustomed labor, the thoughts that rose in her head always centered on Charlie Kinraid. His ways, his words, his looks, whether they all meant what she would fain believe they did, and whether meaning love at the time, such a feeling was likely to endure. Her mother's story of crazy Nancy had taken hold of her, but not as a caution, rather as a parallel case to her own. Like Nancy, and borrowing the poor girl's own words, she would say softly to herself, He once was here. But all along, she believed in her heart he would come back again to her, though it touched her strangely to imagine the agonies of forsaken love. Philip knew little of this. He was very busy with facts and figures, doggedly fighting through the necessary business, and only now and then allowing himself the delicious relaxation of going to Hatersbank in an evening to inquire about his aunt's health and to see Sylvia, for the two Fosters were punctuously anxious to make their shopmen test all their statements, insisting on an examination of the stock, as if Hepburn and Coulson were strangers to the shop, having the monk-shaven auctioneer in to appraise the fixtures and necessary furniture, going over the shop books for the last twenty years with their successors, an employment which took up evening after evening, and not unfrequently taking one of the young men on the long commercial journeys which tediously made in a gig. By degrees, both Hepburn and Colson were introduced to distinct manufacturers and wholesale dealers. They would have been willing to take the Foster's word for every statement the brothers had made on New Year's Day, but this, it was evident, would not have satisfied their masters, who were scrupulous in insisting that whatever advantage there was should always fall on the side of the younger men. When Philip saw Sylvia, she was always quiet and gentle, perhaps more silent than she had been a year ago, and she did not attend so briskly to what was passing around her. She was rather thinner and paler, but whatever change there was in her was always an improvement in Philip's eyes, so long as she spoke graciously to him. He thought she was suffering from long-continued anxiety about her mother, or that she had too much to do, and either cause was enough to make him treat her with a grave regard and deference, which had a repressed tenderness in it of which she, otherwise occupied, was quite unaware. She liked him better, too, than she had done a year or two before, because he did not show her any of the eager attention which teased her then, although its meaning was not fully understood. Things were much in this state when the frost broke, and milder weather succeeded. This was the time so long looked forward to by the invalid and her friends, as favoring the doctor's recommendation of change of air. Her husband was to take her to spend a fortnight with a kindly neighbor who lived near the farm they had occupied forty miles or so inland before they came to Hatersbank. 
the widow woman was to come and stay in the house to keep Sylvia company during her mother's absence. Daniel indeed was to return home after conveying his wife to her destination, but there was so much to be done on the land at this time of the year that Sylvia would have been alone all day had it not been for the arrangement just mentioned. There was an active stirring in Monkshaven Harbour as well as on shore. The whalers were finishing their fittings out for the Greenland seas. It was a closed season, that is to say there would be difficulty in passing the barrier of ice which lay between the ships and the whaling grounds, and yet these must be reached before June, or the year's expedition would be of little avail. Every blacksmith's shop rung with the rhythmical clang of busy hammers, beating out old iron such as horseshoes, nails, or stubs, into the great harpoons. The quays were thronged with busy and important sailors, rushing hither and thither, conscious of the demand in which they were held at this season of the year. It was wartime, too. Many captains unable to procure men in Monkshaven would have to complete their crews in the Shetlands. The shops in the town were equally busy. Stores had to be purchased by the whaling masters, warm clothing of all sorts to be provided. These were the larger wholesale orders, but many a man and woman, too, brought out their small hoards to purchase extra comforts, or precious keepsakes for some beloved one. It was the time of the great half-yearly traffic of the place. Another impetus was given to business when the whalers returned in the autumn, and the men were flush of money, and full of delight at once more seeing their homes and their friends. There was much to be done in Foster's shop, and later hours were kept than usual. Some perplexity or other was occupying John and Jeremiah Foster. Their minds were not so much on the alert as usual being engaged on some weighty matter of which they had not yet spoken to no one. But it thus happened that they did not give the prompt assistance they were accustomed to render at such times. And Colson had been away on some of the new expeditions devolving on him and Philip as future partners. One evening after the shop was closed while they were examining the goods and comparing the sales with the entries in the daybook, Colson suddenly inquired, By the way, Hester, does thee know where the parcel of the best bandanas is gone? There was four left, as I'm pretty sure when I set off to Sandsend, and today Mark Alderson came in and would fain have had one, and I could not find none nowhere. I sold to last today to Jan Seller the Spexineer, who fought the press gang same time as poor Dolly was killed. He took it and three yards of yarn pink ribbon with it, black and yellow crosses on it, as Philip could never abide. Philip has got em into book if he'd only look. Is he here again? said Philip. I didn't see him. What brings him here? Where's he no one wanted? To shop throng with folks, said Hester, and he knew his own mind about the handkerchief and didn't tarry long. Just as he was leaving, his eye caught on to ribbon, and he came back for it. It were when you were serving Mary Darber, and there was a vast of folk around you. I wish I had seen him, said Coulson. I'd have given him a word and a look not had forgotten in a hurry. Why, what's up? said Philip, surprised at William's unusual manner, and at the same time rather gratified to find a reflection of his own feelings about Kinraid. Coulson's face was pale with anger, but for a moment or two he seemed uncertain whether he would reply or not. Up, he said at length. It's just this. He came after my sister for better nor two year, and a better lass. No, nor a prettier in my eyes never broke bread. And then my master saw another girl that he liked better. William almost choked in his endeavor to keep down all appearance of violent anger and then went on, and that he played the same game with as I'd heard tell. And how did thy sister take it? said Philip eagerly. She died in a sixth month, said William. She forgived him, 
but it's beyond me. I thought it were him that I heard of to work about Darley, Kinraid, and coming from Newcastle, where Annie lived apprentice, and I made inquiry, and it were the same man, and I'll say no more about him, for it stirs to old Adam more than I like or is fitting. Out of respect to him, Philip asked no more questions, although there were many things that he fain would have known. Both Colson and he went silently and grimly through the remainder of their day's work, independent of any personal interest which either or both of them had, or might have, in Kinraid's being a light of love. This fault of his was one with which the two grave, sedate young men had no sympathy. Their hearts were true and constant, whatever else might be their failings, and it is no new thing to damn the faults we have no mind to. Philip wished that it was not so late, or that very evening he would have gone to keep guard over Sylvia in her mother's absence. Nay, perhaps he might have seen reason to give her a warning of some kind. But if he had done so, it would have been locking the stable door after the steed was stolen. Kinraid had turned his steps towards Hatersbank Farm as soon as ever he had completed his purchases. He had only come that afternoon to Monkshaven, and for the sole purpose of seeing Sylvia once more before he went to fulfill his engagement as Spexineer in the Urania, a whaling vessel that was to sail from North Shields on Thursday morning, and this was Monday. Sylvia sat in the house place, her back to the long low window, in order to have all the light the afternoon hour afforded for her work. A basket of her father's unmended stockings was on the little round table beside her, and one was on her left hand which she supposed herself to be mending, but from time to time she made long pauses, and looked in the fire, and yet there was but little motion of flame or light in it out of which to conjure visions. It was red up for the afternoon, covered with a black mass of coal, over which the equally black kettle hung on the crook. In the back kitchen, Dolly Reed, Sylvia's assistant during her mother's absence, chanted a lugubrious ditty, befitting her condition as a widow while she cleaned tins and cans and milking pails. Perhaps these bustling sounds prevented Sylvia from hearing approaching footsteps coming down the brow with swift advance. At any rate, she started and suddenly stood up as someone entered the open door. It was strange she should be so much startled, for the person who entered had been in her thoughts all during these long pauses. Charlie Kinraid and the story of Crazy Nancy had been the subjects for her dreams for many a day and many a night. Now he stood there, bright and handsome as ever, with just that much timidity in his face, that anxiety as to his welcome, which gave his accost an added charm, could she but have perceived it. But she was so afraid of herself, so unwilling to show what she felt and how much she had been thinking of him in his absence, that her reception seemed cold and still. She did not come forward to meet him. She went crimson to the very roots of her hair but that in the waning light he could not see. And she shook so that she felt as if she could hardly stand, but the tremor was not visible to him. She wondered if he remembered the kiss that had passed between them on New Year's Eve, the words that had been spoken in the dairy on New Year's Day, the tones, the looks that had accompanied those words. But all she said was, I didn't think to see you. I thought you had sailed. I told you I'd come back, didn't I? said he still standing with his hat in his hand, waiting to be asked to sit down, and she, in her bashfulness, forgetting to give the invitation, but instead pretending to be attentively mending the stocking she held. Neither could keep quiet and silent long. She felt his eyes were upon her, watching every motion, and grew more and more confused in her expression and behavior. 
he was a little taken aback by the nature of his reception, and was not sure at first whether to take the great change in her manner from what it had been when he last saw her as a favorable symptom or otherwise. By and by, luckily for him, in some turn of her arm, to reach the scissors on the table, she caught the edge of her work-basket and down it fell. She stooped to pick up the scattered stockings and ball of worsted, and so did he, and when they rose up he had fast hold of her hand, and her face was turned away, half ready to cry. "'What ails you at me?' he said beseechingly. "'You might have forgotten me, and yet I thought we made a bargain against forgetting each other.' No answer. He went on. "'You've never been out of my thoughts, Sylvia Robson, and I've come back to Monkshaven for naught but to see you once and again afore I go away to the northern seas. It's not two hours since I landed at Monkshaven, and I've been near neither kith nor kin as yet, and now I'm here you won't speak to me.' "'I don't know what to say.' she said in a low, almost inaudible tone. Then hardening herself and resolving to speak as if she did not understand his only half-expressed meaning, she lifted up her head, and all but looking at him, while she wrenched her hand out of his, she said, "'Mother's gone to Mittelham for a visit, and follows out into Plowfield with Kester. He'll be under for long.' Charlie did not speak for a minute or so. Then he said, "'You're not as dull as to think I've come all this way to see either your father or your mother.' I've great respect for them both, but I'd hardly a come all this way to see him, and me bound to be back in shields if I walk every step of the way by Wednesday night. It's that you won't understand my meaning. Sylvia, it's not that you don't, or that you can't. He made no effort to repossess himself on her hand. She was quite silent, and in spite of herself she drew long, hard breaths. I may go back to where I came from, he went on. I thought to go to sea with the blessed hope to cheer me up and a knowledge of someone as loved me as I'd left behind. Someone as loved me half as much as I did her, for the measure of my love toward her is so great and mighty, I'd be content with half as much from her, till I taught her to love me more. But if she's a cold heart and cannot care for an honest seller, why then, I'd best go back at once. He made for the door. He must have been pretty sure from some sign or other, or he would never have left it to her womanly pride to give way, and for her to make the next advance. He had not taken two steps when she turned quickly towards him and said something, the echo of which rather the words themselves reached him. I didn't know you cared for me. You never said so. In an instant he was back at her side, his arm round her in spite of her short struggle, and his eager passionate voice saying, You never know I loved you, Sylvia. Say it again and look into my face while you say it, if you can. I last thought you'd be such a woman would come to be as one, and I never looked upon. And this year, ever since I saw you in the kitchen corner sitting crouching by my uncle, I as good as swore as I have you for wife, or never wed at all. And it was not long ere you knowed it, for all you were so coy. And now you have the face. No, you have not the face. Come, my darling, what is it? For she was crying and on his turning her wet blushing face towards him, the better to look at it, she suddenly hid it in his breast. He lulled and soothed her in his arms, as if she was a weeping child, and he her mother, and then they sat down on the settle together. And when she was more composed they began to talk. He asked her about her mother, not sorry in his heart at Bell Robson's absence. He had intended, if necessary, to acknowledge his wishes and desires with regard to Sylvia to her parents, but for various reasons he was not sorry that circumstances 
had given him the chance of seeing her alone and obtaining her promise to marry him without being obliged to tell either her father or her mother at present. I had spent my money pretty free, he said, and I've ne'er a penny to the fore, and your parents may look for something better for you, my pretty. But when I come back fro this voyage, I shall stand a chance of having a share in the Urania, and maybe I shall be in a mate as well as inspectioneer. I can get a matter of from seventy to twenty pound a voyage, let alone the half guineas for every well I stake, and six shilling a gallon to the oil, and if he keeps steady with Forbes and company, they'll make me a master in time, for I've had good schooling, and can work a ship as well as any man, and I'll leave you with your parents, or take a cottage for you nigh at hand, but I would like to have something to the fore, and that I shall have, please God, when we come back in the autumn. I shall go to see happy now, thinking I've your word. You're not one to go back from it, I'm sure. Else it's a long time to leave such a pretty girl as you, and ne'er a chance of a letter reaching you, just to tell you once again how I love you, and to bid you not forget your true love. There'll be no need of that, murmured Sylvia. She was too dizzy with happiness to have attended much to his details, of his worldly prospects, but at the sound of his tender words of love, her eager heart was ready to listen. I don't know, he said, wanting to draw her out into more confession of her feelings. There is many a one ready to come after you, and your mother is not over-captivated with me, and there is yon tall fellow of a cousin as looks black at me. For if I'm not mistaken, he's a notion of being sweet on you himself. Not he, said Sylvia, with some contempt in her tone. He's so full of business, and shop, and o making money and getting wealth. Aye, aye, but perhaps when he gets a rich man he'll come and ask my Sylvia to be his wife, and what will she say then? He'll never come asking such a foolish question, she said a little impatiently. He knows what answer he'll get if he did. Kinraid almost said to himself, Your mother favors him, though. But she, weary of a subject she cared nothing about, and eager to identify herself with all his interests, asked him about his plans almost at the same time that he said these last words. And they went on as lovers do, intermixing a great many tender expressions with a very little conversation relating to facts. Dolly Reed came in and went out softly, unheeded by them. But Sylvia's listening ears caught her father's voice as he and Kester returned homewards from their day's work in the plough field, and she started away and fled upstairs in shy affright leaving Charlie to explain his presence in the solitary kitchen to her father. He came in, not seeing that anyone was there at first, for they had never thought of lighting a candle. Kinraid stepped forward into the firelight, his purpose of concealing what he had said to Sylvia quite melted away by the cordial welcome her father gave him the instant that he recognized him. "'Bless thee, lad! Would I had thought of seeing thee! Why, if ever I thought of thee at all, it were halfway to Davis' straits. To be sure, winter's been a dry season, and thou art maybe interate on to make a late start. Latest art ever I've made when ninth through March, and we struck thirteen wells that year. I have something to say to you, said Charlie, in a hesitating voice, so different to his usual hearty way, that Daniel gave him a keen look of attention before he began to speak, and perhaps the elder man was not unprepared for the communication that followed. At any rate, it was not unwelcome. He liked Kinraid, and had strong sympathy not merely with what he knew of the young sailor's character, but with the life he led and the business he followed. Robson listened to all he said with approving nods and winks, till Charlie had told him everything he had to say, 
and then he turned and struck his broad, horny palm into Kinraid's, as if concluding a bargain, when he expressed in words his hearty consent to their engagement. He wound up with a chuckle, as the thought struck him that this great piece of business, of disposing of their only child, had been concluded while his wife was away. I'm known so sure as to Mrs. O'Lackett, he said, for whatever shall have to say against it, mischief on I knows. But she's no one keen on matrimony, though I have made her a good as man as ever there is at the ridings. Anyhow, I'm a master and that she knows. But there may be, for the sake of peace and quietness, though she'll never a scolding tongue, that I will say for her. We and best keep this matter to ourselves till thou comes into port again. To lass upstairs are like naught better than to curl herself around the secret and purr over it, just as the old cat does over her blind kitten. But thou will be wanting to see to lass all be a blound. An old man like me isn't as good a company as a pretty lass. Laughing a low, rich laugh over his own wit, Daniel went to the bottom of the stairs and called, Sylvie, Sylvie, come down, lass. Asrit, come down. For a time there was no answer. Then a door was unbolted, and Sylvia said, I can't come down again. I'm no one coming down again tonight. Daniel laughed the more at this, especially when he caught Charlie's look of disappointment. Hearken how she bolted her door. She'll no one come near us this night. Eh, but she's a stiff little one. And she's been our only one, and when mostly let her have her own way. But we'll have a pipe in the glass, and that, to my thinking, is as good a company as ever a woman in Yorkshire. End of chapter 16. Recording by Larn McCullough. www.larnmccullough.com.